0: Hello, I'm Alistair. I'm Andrew. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 3 of Scene From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth observation. Check out seenfromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we meet the Sisters of Sar. Okay, let's do the news then. On the 3rd of February 2021, So the first bit of news that I have is that uh, COG, so Cloud Optimized GeoTiff, has become an official part of OGC. And OGC is the Open Geospatial Consortium, which is an international consortium of businesses, agencies, organizations, universities, et cetera, looking at things like uh, geospatial standards and making sure that emerging tech trends and things like that adhere to the FAIR mantra. So that's findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. It was announced in a tweet from the OGC and then retweeted by Chris Holmes. Link to that, and again, I don't know how new this is, but it's something that I've only just recently come across, is that there is now a community module for GeoServer that supports cloud-optimized GeoTIFFs. So if you are a user of GeoServer and you want to use COGS and cloud-optimized GeoTIFFs, then check out the link that we put in the show notes.
1: That is massive, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice to see the
0: wider adoption, for sure. I'm hoping it will also mean that there will be even more support and use of GeoServer because GeoServer is ridiculously powerful. And I think it'd be really nice to get that used even more. Yeah. I mean, the power,
1: you're right, the power behind it. I mean, I've used GeoServer before. And, you know, when you compare it to a proprietary system, yeah. you, you know, it, it blows your mind. Uh, just back to the OGC and this COGS, I was reading through the, the press release, and, it, and it's basically an OGC GeoTIFF standard working group. Uh, and they've, okay. uh, they've got a load of load of updates in it. and at the end they've got uh, comments due by the 11th of February of this year. There's a PDF out there of 11 pages and, and I'm just looking at the deliverables. And the nice thing about this is that it goes quite deep and they try and look at all
0: bits, broad branch as it were. Um another thing that I've seen which is really cool was put out by LiveEO and this is really interesting because they've mapped vegetation encroachment risk to the entire publicly available US transmission grid. So LiveEO is a Berlin-based startup and you know how in previous episodes when we've talked about sort of use of the cloud and and cogs and various other things for for doing data processing and you've said how it's it's not about 10 images anymore it's about 10,000. So so basically Liveeo took 15,000 satellite images and they evaluated the risk through the use of their analysis equations and algorithms for 574,000 miles of electricity lines and there's a really cool image that they've put out as well where they've they've overlaid some of the information across a, a base layer of the US. Not only is that really nice, but I think this is one of those things where we've been talking about what is possible and then some company comes along and just goes, yeah, oh yeah, we did this. And it's exactly, it's even more than what we were saying. Amazing, isn't it? It is really cool. And then the final thing that I wanted to mention in the news this episode was just change focus a little bit so quite often I think as again as we've mentioned in the podcast before we are aware that we focus a lot on Europe and yeah North America but this is some news that's coming from INPE so INPE the Brazilian uh, Space Agency about their Amazon mission The Amazon mission will provide remote sensing data to observe and monitor deforestation, particular to the Amazon region. And it also will be looking at agriculture as well throughout Brazil. And it's going to have quite a high revisit rate and will be working alongside other environmental programs. So I'm I'm guessing they mean things like Sentinel-2 and some of the other satellites that are operated by Brazilians as well. But yeah, this was quite interesting just in terms of the fact that it's another satellite going up. So this is actually due to go up later this month. So it should be going up at the end of February 2021. So good luck to that when it gets launched. And it'll be really interesting to see how the project proceeds.
1: Actually, without sort of jumping all over your um, news, between episode release and recording, we had that huge launch from SpaceX. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. So that's just, just reminded me of, of, of that, which broke the world record. They launched a lot of things. In fact, they launched 140. I can't even know, remember the number, but it was a. It broke the world record. Basically, it was successfully launched, and all these things I believe have been successfully deployed. 48 Super Doves and 143 satellites on the payload. So it's not all EO satellites. Okay, so for me, in the last three weeks, two things have just, in terms of news in our industry, feel like they kind of dominate. The first one is a sad story. In fact, neither of them are particularly happy stories, sadly, in in, in the news. When I started working in GIS and remote sensing, I always felt difficult to describe what GIS was to to the layperson. You kind of either got it or you really didn't get it. And even today, it's still somehow difficult to describe. But there's one particular product that everybody um, always relates back to. And that product is Google Earth. And in this last three weeks, the guy behind Keyhole, which was, was later to be bought and become Google Earth, Michael Jones, died. Google Earth arrives, and maybe I was a bit late to it, but I think it was sort of circa 2004, 2005, when it, when it really sort of gained prominence. And this thing just exploded, and it, and it sort of exploded out of nowhere. And the general principles behind the innovation in different industries still remain the same today. That were back then, which is quite often an outsider comes along and says, ah, the way we're going to interact with maps, slippy maps, is going to be like this. The way we're going to zoom into data is going to be like this. It's going to be intuitive. It's why the iPhone was so compelling. It's so intuitive that for me, it changed The whole face of working with spatial data, not only did it give me something I could point to and say, that's what I do for a living, even
0: though I didn't do anything to do with Google Earth. So I found that it totally transformed the job I was doing, not because I was using Google Earth, which I I did do, but it was because my colleagues were able to use Google Earth. Quite often, the person doing GIS in an office was called upon to just create maps, basically. If someone wanted a map of a site to go out and do an ecological survey or do a ground survey or whatever, or a flood survey, you created the map. Once they had the power of Google Earth or on their desktop and they could zoom around, they could see things, they could get some sort of insight themselves, it meant that those doing GIS were freed up in terms of their time, to do a little bit more analysis. I would suggest that most GIS people and most geospatial people want to do analysis of some sort. People having the ability to look for themselves around an area they're interested in really transformed, I think, the entire industry because it freed up time. As we spoke about way back
1: at the beginnings of of our podcast, everybody has been competing to build the killer app in Earth observation for, for basically a decade or more. And nobody has managed to come anywhere close to beating Google Earth. I wanted to sort of take two quotes that I read about Michael Jones, um, who, who was the CEO and later worked for Google. This one's from 2010. And he said, the way to design things is to be as open as you can be. That should be the future of GIS. Things that are built upon building blocks that work together. And the second thing that he said was Today, it's the people, not the cartographer, asking the questions. Maps are interactive now, and users are also creators of maps. And I think that's really where we are today. So, yeah, it's really sad news, but changed my career for sure. Um, The last thing I wanted to say, and I'm never quite sure how to sort of bridge this or approach this, I should say. If GDAL breaks, how many Earth observation businesses fall over? We are so in the hands... Of a few people who support this critical component of everything we do with raster data and geospatial raster data. Looking at the bigger picture, it's true with so many other things. You know, NumPy and all this. You know, stuff within Python. We rely upon just a small band of people to to prop up massive. You know, huge sectors, and it's never. It's never said. events where people are raving about you know satellite technology is changing the world and then you know the growth potential is 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 massive and a few few things have sort of been said on twitter uh, recently and there's some sponsorship pages and i I don't want to go necessarily into specifics and unless you potentially feel that that's the right way to go but i do think we're at this point now where we need to have a discussion And we need to have this collective acknowledgement somehow that without this work being done, then we really are all so much scrabbling in the dark.
0: It's interesting that this is now being raised in the geospatial realm. So I I use Linux as my sort of main go-to operating system. And so I've been keeping an eye on just things that happen in the Linux world. And this whole notion of individuals or a very few number of people keeping open source projects running, and then larger organizations relying on that project, that open source project for the whole of their operations, but not necessarily giving back or giving support um, is is something that's come up there in the past. So a few years ago, there was a huge issue, I think it was with SSH, I can't remember exactly now, but it was a huge uh, security issue. And it turned out that basically it was one guy or maybe two who had been running this open source project on their own for ages and yet basically every single web server every single website every single instance of anything that was online was using the protocols that they were they were coming up with and you know there's just no way when you've got one or two people trying to keep a project up and running and ahead of the curve and you've got probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of people trying to find ways to break it. And things are not favorably weighted towards the project. And there was a, a some security issue that was found and it, it caused a real problem. The outcome of that, if I remember correctly, was that basically there was an agreement amongst a lot of the larger companies that, okay, we're going to give either resource in terms of money or resource in terms of time from some of our developers to help out this project. And I think that's sort of the types of topics that are coming up now, I think, around some of the geospatial things, where they're so critical to... Basically, every piece of geospatial software that you use, and there needs to be not just a lot of support in terms of sort of financial support, but there needs to be support in terms of communities that actually want to see the success of these projects, and organisations who are willing to put forward resource in terms of employees' time to help as well, if that help is required.
1: It's such a difficult thing, and it it clearly is difficult because it's an issue still today whether it should be the responsibility of the individual or the organization, or should it be a bit of both or anything that goes?
0: How do you acknowledge in a fair way? Is that an issue? A lot more people have heard about open source. A lot more people understand what it's trying to do, what the concepts are behind it and what the, what it means to be part of a community and things like that. So I guess really it comes down to how you want to run the organization that you're running. Support the community in the way that the community wants. And if it's a community <laughs> that is built around a single developer, then really it's up to that single developer to to decide how they want to be supported. And the rest of the community should support them how they want to be supported, not trying to dictate to that de- developer about how they should be supported sort of thing. I think there's a lot of issues around community growth and the use of effectively free at the point of use technologies and ideas. But as we all know, there's nothing that's totally free. Is there an issue here that what we're really talking about is maintenance? Sometimes it's not easy to understand how to make a financial contribution or what happens to the money when when it actually goes to a project. Probably as human beings, most of us want to be doing the shiny new thing and playing with all the new toys. And so maintenance, it's not the sexy thing to be doing. And so it doesn't always get done.
1: I mean, I'm conscious that this is the news. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think the news is really that,
1: and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but Evan Rao, basically he's taken a step back from supporting g and he has done so much work, but it's a lot to carry on one person's shoulders. And without him, we would be in a worse place it's almost like the dark news in, in, in the sense that we do really try and shout out the companies that are doing amazing things but they're doing amazing things on the shoulders of evan
0: and that's it for the news Okay, this episode, we are really chuffed to be joined by Laura Gopika and Sarah from Sisters of Sar. I was wondering whether or not the easiest way to do this would be just to get each of you to introduce yourselves and maybe give a little potted history about how you've come to be involved in SAR. And maybe one of you could also introduce Sisters of SAR as well, so people know what that is.
2: So, I mean, the whole idea for Sisters of SAR, we were really inspired by Morgan Crowley, who was a co-founder of the Ladies of Landsat. So it was actually, you know, based on her encouragement to tell me at some point, you know, we should have a similar thing for women in SAR remote sensing. So it was really based on her encouragement and her ladies of Landsat that I grabbed the Twitter handle and you know, kind of thought about how we could have a similar kind of thing for women in SAR remote sensing.
0: And was that pretty much at the same time as Ladies in Lancet?
2: It was back in 2019 when we met at Carleton University. She was taking one of the SAR courses being offered by Heather McNairn at the time. And I was presenting a little bit about machine learning. And that's where we met actually. And we started talking about how she runs Ladies of Landsat, but there really isn't anything out there for women in SAR remote sensing.
0: So maybe you can tell us little bit about yourself and how you got into SAR.
2: My name is Sarah Banks and I'm a physical scientist at Environment and Climate Change Canada. I work at the National Wildlife Research Centre in Ottawa and I'm part of the wetland research group. So we are focused on using SAR technology for developing status and trend information for wetlands and I really got my start uh, using SAR back in my undergrad. So I've been using it for 11 years. I did my undergrad in geography, and then my master's in geography as well. So I've been using SAR since then. And I hope to start my PhD this September.
0: Okay, cool. The
3: story continues with us, uh, and me. And um, so about February of 2020, just before we all went into lockdown, Dr. Heather McNair, will you'll, he- you'll hear we, we mentioned her a lot. She's a she's a mentor for the Sisters of SAR. And I actually work with her. She is also on the IEEE Women in GRSS and Ideas committees and they were looking for a way to promote women in SAR and again, Morgan and and Ladies of Landsat are a great inspiration. And so they thought that would be a great idea to have something similar. So we were kicking around names in the office and lots of different names came up. And then we we kind of thought, oh, what about Sisters of SAR? So I searched Twitter and found that uh, Sisters of SAR was already set up by Sarah, who is a very long time collaborator with us. And uh, we thought it would be a really great fit. So we got together with Sarah and Morgan and Heather and I, and we kind of came up with our tweeting schedule, what we thought we'd tweet about. And so we started on uh, April 27th, 2020, but we realized pretty quickly after that, that we would need some help. So I'll give you a little introduction to myself before I pass it on to Kapika, but uh, I'm a physical scientist with uh, Agriculture and AgarFood Canada. So that's AAFC. And uh, we've been mapping the agricultural extent of Canada using a SAR optical methodology since about 2011. So that's, we're in our 10th year now. I particularly work in research and development, uh, mostly focused on crop mapping and modeling using SAR. So right now, my main focuses are using multi-frequency SAR. So for example, CX and L band together for crop mapping, and then also using compact polar for crop classification, because this is a operational mode on the government of Canada's RadarSat Constellation Mission Satellites, which just went up in 2019.
0: I love the fact there's a story that goes through all three of you. It's awesome.
4: (laughs) All right, I'll continue with the story. So my story kind of starts (laughs) with um, me choosing to move back closer to the country where I was born. So I was born in India, but I'm German by nationality and I've been here. All my career has been in Germany as well. Actually, in 2019, I decided, okay, I'm going to move back somewhere close by. And I found this wonderful research fellow position at the NTU in Singapore, which is the Nanyang Technological University. I moved there and then the world changed. And um, of course, you know, we had the first case of uh, COVID-19 in January 2020 in Singapore. And already then, you know, I was in a new country and uh, I'd just been introduced to this new group and we were doing home office already in January. We went into lockdown and I was dealing with a lot of mental health issues and I became more active on Twitter then because (laughs) there was nothing else to do. I was all alone. My husband was due to join me three or four months later and I was in this huge apartment all alone. And that's when I saw a call from the Sisters of SA asking for support. A lot of people who are interested and I signed up, I volunteered and I'm so grateful that I joined them because It gave me a sort of purpose during those times. I really enjoyed working with Laura and Sarah and Heather. And yeah, I'm I'm glad that Sisters of Sa happened. And because of me being in Singapore and Laura and Sarah being in Canada, we were able to cover all the time zones. That's the story of Sisters of Sa. And a little bit about myself. So my name is Gopika Suresh. Like I said, um, I'm a postdoc at the Asian School of Environment, which is part of the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. My research focuses on developing methods and algorithms for coastal change analysis, the coastline monitoring, coastal hazards mapping, all from synthetic aperture radar data. So I'm a SAR person from the beginning till now. I'm an engineer. I did my bachelor's in electronics and communications engineering. And I moved to Germany then to do a master's in satellite engineering, where I specialized in remote sensing. And during an internship at the German Aerospace Center, I was introduced to these high-resolution, beautiful Terrace X images. And that was it for me. <laughs> yes,
0: I can You've been spoiled.
4: I know. <laughs> <laughs> And I started with, you know, these high-resolution images back in 2011, 2010. And my career since then has just been with SAR. Mostly SAR, I do use a lot of uh, Sentinel-2 as well now. And then I decided to move to Singapore. So that's the story (laughs) until now. And now I'm back in Germany.
0: There's so much I could unpack there. So many different things. I mean, one of the things, one day we'll have to do an episode on just how people get into different parts of Earth observation. I love the fact that you're an engineer and that other people are coming at it more from a sort of physical science point of view and things like that. Is, I find that really interesting. Before we move on from Sisters of SAR to some of the more SAR-y type questions, Laura, do you want to just quickly mention some of the hashtags? So I've seen that there's a hashtag SAR Fact Mondays and the one I was really interested in that maybe you can talk a little bit more about was the SAR Star Fridays. I think that's really cool. Uh, we
3: developed this. Plan for tweeting, and so yeah, there's hashtags for every day. Um, we even had one for the weekend, but both Kapika and I found that with and Sarah, we didn't really want to be tweeting on the weekend. Um, so we ended up kind of dropping that one. But uh, yeah, so Mondays is SAR Fact Monday. Tuesdays are Training Tuesdays, that's when we highlight all the available training that we know of that's upcoming or existing on the internet. Wednesdays day, women uh, is hashtag Women Wednesday. So that's supporting other Twitter feeds that support women and gender minorities and other people in STEM. Thursdays is Picture Day. So that's when we're trying to show that SAR is just not that speckly black and white stuff that everybody thinks it is and (laughs) showing act. Actually, how beautiful that SAR can be. And then of course, Fridays is our uh, pride and joy. So that's the SAR star. And it's focused right now on women in SAR. And it's a woman at any point in her career. And so we just want to show that there's a wide variety of women who are doing some amazing SAR work. As of today, we're at 38 SAR stars. And we have two in the pipeline right now for the next couple of weeks. And uh, we we really enjoy that. And, uh, you know letting people see that there's a, a wide range of work that's being done by these fantastic women.
0: That's really awesome. So to move that on a little bit, Sarah, I put out a poll, and I don't know whether Sisters of Sar actually managed to mobilize the troops and, and get them to all click on this, the SAR answer for this. But I put out a poll on the Eocene from Twitter account, and it was 2021 will be the year of the options were SAR, high temporal repeats, hyperspectral cogs, and SAR won by a pretty major margin. So 58.5% basically came back as saying that SAR is going to be the thing that 2021 will be remembered by. I'm guessing you would agree. But I was just wondering if you've got anything that you want to add about sort of like why you think SAR has suddenly come of age?
2: I did see that. And that was a an interesting question. I'm glad that SAR won. Uh, (laughs) I think it's probably a little more accurate to say that we're in the golden age. So it's, you know, all these advances and exciting things coming up over a number of years and into the next few years. One of the things that I'm really excited about is the launch of NISAR. That's going to be really critical for a lot of the wetland work that we're doing. But uh, certainly 2021, there's a lot of exciting things coming up as well.
0: Okay, so would you say that basically SAR uh, applications are going to be the thing for 2021? Or is there a lot happening in the sort of the hardware side of things?
2: Yeah, we're more likely to be on the application side. Uh, definitely, there are some interesting things coming out with the hardware and some of these small sats. Uh, definitely interesting stuff. There's a lot of things coming out in 2021 that are really exciting.
0: Is SAR still hard?
4: Sure, but so uh, many other things like baking or pottery making.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but with so much data now and, and the ease of getting it, is, would you say that the opportunities now are, are much greater? Or, or do you think that actually there's, there's so much more complexity just in the systems and in terms of getting the data that actually it hasn't made it any, any easier really?
4: Something that I personally experienced while working for the government or even teaching is that a lot of people are afraid of SAR data just because they've heard that it's extremely difficult to work with. And that's almost the same thing that you
0: said. Yes.
4: (laughs) But the moment you make them aware of... All the existing online resources and all the massive open online courses and trainings, or even just show them something simple like flooding from two or three SAR images in a time lapse animation made from the EO browser from the Sentinel Hub, then suddenly SAR data is not as intimidating as they thought it would be. We have access to so many online resources that provide introduction to SAR data processing, SAR data, SAR everything. And you have access to the data itself that you can test and play around with. You have access to open source SAR softwares and even platforms where you have the best hardware and software capabilities. So you don't have to have anything on your computer anymore. That's what we try to do with our Training Tuesdays hashtags, where we tell people, you know, who are looking to work with SAR data where to go and what to
1: look for yeah i'm really really impressed with you guys how in the space of what less than a year you've gone to i was just looking at your twitter account 2800 followers i think you're averaging about five or six tweets a day you're so engaged with the community. It's huge, huge credit to yourselves. It's it's, it's sort of wonderful to see. Are you just present on Twitter? And I, I ask that because I'm always concerned that people we miss that aren't on Twitter, the silent majority of people. Building communities is hard and you've done really one well in a year. And I'm going to ask you a really hard question, which is how are you going to build it even further?
3: Yes, actually, we have a call out looking for new members actually awesome. right now on Twitter solely right now. But yeah. um, number one, because... Uh, uh Rebecca's going to go on mat leave in about weeks now. So <laughs> we we kind of uh, will need some help for the first little bit while she's busy and um and that's kind of also crossing over while Sarah's away, still away on mat leaves, so so it'll be me, and uh, yeah, um, we we're were we definitely we have a tweet out looking for help right now, and we're open to not only women, but we're open to allies of women and other uh, people in the SAR community who are just interested in and in being a part of growing the community. We haven't really sat down and, and started discussing, you know, a bigger online presence, a website. We have joined up with the Ladies of Landsat, the ISPRS-SC, the asprs i I'm going to miss some people, but uh, <laughs> for a geomixer that we're now co-hosting every month. And yeah. that's bringing together people in the geosciences world to just uh, meet on Zoom uh, once a month. And uh, you come into the meeting and you're sent into these breakout rooms for a few minutes and you get to meet a lot of really fascinating people. And they're not all necessarily SAR people. And uh, the first one was really great. We actually made a lot of really great contacts there. So that's kind of where we are right now. Kopika might have some more thoughts about this.
4: Well, I'd just like to add that we are also currently talking to the organisers of the SAR Capacity Building Initiative who also want to just get the sisters of SAR involved in what they're doing. So they also have this wonderful initiative where they're trying to bring together early career SAR scientists and researchers and the more established researchers so that, you know, kind of bridge the gap and help with everything.
1: For me, with, with, with SAR being a sort of more optical GIS kind of programmer type guy. I've always described SAR to potential clients as it's quite heavy in the sense that it's a lot of data coming down, and often I get a call from someone saying, "Hey, can you just do some InSAR for me?" And I'm like, um, <laughs> "It's not something like I could just turn the switch and, and there's your there's your InSAR stuff." But I found in the last oh, I don't know I was going to say year, but maybe even maybe even longer, the EO College and the accessibility of the data on things like as you just mentioned the EO browser is a massive game changer for SAR. Do you guys feel the same? Is there is there something else I'm missing? Yeah, well, what are the what are the um, the big changes that you've seen, and what are the resources that that people should be looking?
2: I'm really excited about Earth Engine. I think Earth Engine is one of those big game changers that everybody's really excited about. And I think you can do a lot of stuff with uh, Sentinel data on Earth Engine. We kind of got some problems with uh, data sharing agreements in Canada. So I think that these open data policies are really important. And that like, those are the big game changers that I think are really changing things, making the data more accessible and with Earth Engine bring the people to the data rather than the other way around. Anything that goes on Earth Engine, I think has to have an open data policy. So yeah. it wouldn't be possible to use, say upload some data unless there's an open data policy associated with it. So in my opinion, those are the big uh, game changers. Open data policies are really, really making things, you know, more accessible to users and with things like Earth Engine really, really efficient. The SAR data, it's quite expensive in some cases. So having this free and open data so you can start building uh, cases for its use, and I think that's really important. And that's helped with the advancements and the you know, building the business case for other sensors to be launched.
4: If I may add, I know that IceEye, they've already released a lot of their data on a public archive, but I know for IceEye, for sure, they want to also have products that they want to sell.
1: We're getting to a point almost where there's a sensor designed or launched for an application. You know, on a project basis, this is almost like the dream because, you know, say you work in floods or, you know, mapping infrastructure or whatever it may be, you can just Launch your own satellite and own that market. Um, What was that satellite that you mentioned earlier? NISAR. Yeah.
2: Oh, it's l band and S band satellite. I believe it's joint collaboration between NASA and the Indian Space Agency, and supposed to be launching in 2022 now, and should be 10 meter coverage throughout Canada, and in the US, I believe it's something like uh, five meters. So because of its longer wavelength than some of the other commercial satellites or uh, Government of Canada satellites, which are C-band, we have greater capacity to penetrate vegetation and observe that sort of sub-canopy condition. So whether there's inundation or not. And for Environment Canada, that's really important for wetland mapping and monitoring purposes.
1: Is that going to be open data? Do you know? Yes. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Do you think you could be an accidental SAR user in the sense that you're desperately searching around for another thing to contribute to your project application system or whatever? And then you sort of stumble across another data set and it's SAR. Uh, the things like the Sentinel Hub are kind of like, oh, I can look at all this NDVI and hang on a second, what what's this?
4: Especially for applications regarding natural hazard mapping and things like that. Yeah. You inevitably go to radar data because that's the only thing available during a storm or during a flood or during an earthquake or anything. You, it's there whenever you need it. And I think that's where a lot of people venture into the SAR world for, you know, for disaster and natural hazard mapping.
1: Yeah, it does seem that when, when the hurricanes and, and things hit, when you've got the companies like working with insurance, they've realized that the optical data just gives you a really beautiful image of a hurricane. And that doesn't that doesn't really help
0: I'm afraid that we've we've come to the end of our time, which is a shame because I, I think there's loads of ways we could carry on talking and taking this in different directions. Maybe as a final question, there seems to be a real charge at the moment in terms of groups like Sisters of Sar and uh, Ladies of Landsat. And there seems to be a, a lot more effort in terms of events trying to broaden inclusion and diversity on the panels they have and the, the speakers they have. Obviously, we're still at early days in trying to, to change things, but From what you were saying earlier, that you also try and reach out into the wider STEM area, could you just maybe finish up with some of the positives that you're seeing in terms of how things are beginning to change in this sort of scientific area?
4: Okay, so let me start off by saying that um, when you mentioned that 2021 is going to be the year for SAR, I agree, but I also think 2021 is going to be the year when I believe our remote sensing community is going to become more inclusive and more representative and that is because of all the initiatives that we started last year in 2020. So all of those began and you see initiatives like, you know, Ladies of Lancet, the Women in Geospatial Plus, Women in Copernicus, Sisters of Star, the 500 Women Scientists, all of these, they kind of started putting pressure onto different institutions and organizations. And I believe that 2021 will be the year when actions are actually implemented. So another thing that is going to be seen in the remote sensing community is not just uh, these actions being implemented, but also hopefully funding opportunities to make the community more representative or more job opportunities targeting, you know, trying to increase representation. So I think that's what this year is going to be. And uh, I hope that happens because being a woman of color, you know, it's uh, kind of nice to see people becoming aware of the unconscious and conscious biases that exist
0: that's, that's a brilliantly upbeat place to end thank you we encourage you to drop us a line through twitter using at from where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast thanks for listening and that's it for now thanks andrew thanks alistair
1: bye, bye. we're not going to talk box today are we
3: Half is not an easy one to walk through. So take me with you. And you don't have to go alone. The life is growing like you walking past
4: I could ask you to take up just every
3: single night I try but never bring the same
0: thing. So Podcast music is Cracker and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons License, available on freemusicarchive.org.